Hello everyone. Falcha, welcome to the Incomparable History of Ireland podcast. This show is to share the richness of this ancient island. It's Misha Lauren. I am Lauren, your host on this journey through the stories of this Emerald Isle. I represent the Clan Nagel of Delaware, an Irish society for the education of Irish language, history, and culture. In the first episode, I shared how the Tudadana were beaten by the Milesians, who are the Celts, Gales, and they took the underneath of Ireland. In this episode, I want to share more about the Tudadana and the magic they brought with them. The Tuatha were supernatural race that resided in the other world, but were able to interact with humans and other living beings in the real world. The Christian monks wrote about them a great deal, but they always referred to them as Celtic gods and goddesses and turned some into saints. The name Tuatha means the goddess, uh, the people of the goddess Danu, but there's really no history of her. The Tuatadana came from four island cities in the north, or perhaps the other world, where they stayed for a period of time in each of them. They went there, as you remember, when they were separated from the other half of the Nemedians, who went towards the Mediterranean, where the fair Bolog. Uh, these magical cities they visited were Falias, the city of science, Gorias, the city of faith, Morius, the Fortress of the Pinnacles, and Phineas, the Bright City. In these cities, they studied occult knowledge, warcraft, arts, sorcery, druidism, witchcraft, and magical skills, and the making of mounds and circles, which is interesting because you find a lot of them in Ireland, and we're actually going to go into that in the megalithic um, structures that were left behind episode. They wove their lore in clever words of beauty and poetry as to better recall them and to teach them, and this was the responsibility of Ford Druid. The names of these four druids were Morasa, who came from Folias, Esras, who came from Gorias, Shavis, who came from Moraeus, and Ishkeus, who came from Phineas. These wise men and storytellers also had power in the four treasures which the Tuatadana brought with them to Ireland. From the city of Folias, which means the place of destiny or sovereignty, Moraris brought the Leofal, the stone of the kings. It is this phallic-shaped pillar, and it sits at the seat of the kings. And you can see it today in Ireland, though not the original stone. The original stone was said to have been located at the Mound of the Hostages. The new stone was said to have been erected in 1820. The Leofal, all kings of Ireland, were crowned there up until the 500 AD. Whenever the true king of Ireland took his seat, the Leofal would cry out a great voice like thunder or deep roaring like a river beneath the earth. It is said that because Morasa 
was the Druid of Wisdom, the stone held all knowledge and hidden in its swirled carvings that you can see on it. Kukulin, who was said to have split the stone with his sword so angry when it didn't cry out for his prodigy, and after that, the stone was said to never cry again till the coronation of Brian Baru in the year 1002. Both these men will have their own episode in the future. The druid Asras, who comes from Gorias, the city of healing, every word was a prayer in that city, and it warped the fates into the spear of blue of the silver arm. None who held this spear could lose a battle, and its owner must die should he ever lose it. The spearhead is made of kundala, also known as heartstone. It's an absolute indestructible substance created during the Age of Legends. It absorbs any force attempting to break it, and it is believed to become stronger as a result. It is about a foot in length and shaped like a cylinder spade. And there's these letters in Ogdam, I-O-D-H-A-D-H, written in lines and dashes, which is the old Irish, at the center of the spearhead on both sides. When a flow of fire is channeled into these markings, the entire spearhead erupts into a blaze of blue fire. It acts as normal fire does, but cannot be extinguished, except for severing the flow of fire being worked into the symbols. The, the shaft is you would, enchanted with powerful keeping weave, covered in a layer of maroon paint. The Ogdom letters are etched along the length of the file, um, the length and filed in with gold gilding. Small rubies are embedded into gold rings that connect the head to the shaft. A tan braid of leather cord is tied around the shaft beneath the ring. Its length trails out a foot and a half, and three eagle feathers are tied to the end of the cord. Lou used this to kill his Fomorian grandfather, the great King Baller, at the Second Battle of Moitora. Lou being our next episode. It was also called the Answerer, because if it was held at someone's neck, they couldn't move or lie. It has traveled far and wide to distant lands over passing ages, gaining a dark renown. Nobody knows where it is today, though, and that's for the best, I'm sure. The Cleve Solus, the Sword of Light, was forged by Ischus, the Water Lord, in the searing heat and day foundries of Phineas, the pale, white, and beautiful city. And it was brought by Nuda, who made it his own. Once drawn, it must slay whomever it was raised against. And there was no escaping its wrath. It burned with a pulsing heat and a blinding light. The sword was thrust into the bosom of the taker of souls, sent to reap the battle harvest of the second battle of Moitora, where the Fomorians were defeated, and it fell with the demon spirit into the collapsing depth of the underworld, 
Whispered tales tell that a fairy queen stole it back, though, and lends it to heroes who complete three tasks for her. From the hand of Shavius, the pillar of science, in Moraeus, the fortress of the pinnacle, was a cauldron of abundance. None could walk away from it unsatisfied. Its water could also heal wounds and even bring back life to the dead, and it seemed to have no bottom. Some say it was itself a passage to the other world, by which travelers could visit magical isles and even return to the cities from where the Tuatha came from. The Dagda owned this cauldron. The Dagda was the god of the Tuatha the high god. And it is said that he lived in Brunaboyne, which was Newgrange. And we'll discuss Newgrange and the other megalithic structures in a future episode. The Dagda name, though, means the good god or the great god. He is often described as a large bearded man or giant wearing a hooded cloak. He owns a magic staff or club or mace called the Logmor. Of dual nature, it can kill on one end and bring life to, uh, on the other end. Along with the cauldron and staff, his great treasure was his harp, called the four-angled music. It was made of oak and richly decorated, and only the Dagda could make music from its strings. He could make anyone who hear it laugh for joy or weep with sorrow. And he'd play this harp, and it made seasons come in the correct order. He used it when the men were going into battle. His playing would make them forget all their fears and charge into fight, thinking of nothing but honor and bloodlust. When the Fomorians were preparing to fight the Tuatadana in that second battle of Motora, a few of the warriors heard of Dagda's wonderful harp. And at the end of the day's fighting, he would play for the warriors who survived as they came home, and his songs would take all the weariness out of their hearts and let them forget their grief for their fallen comrades and think only of the glory they had won. They decided, the Fomorians, it would be a great blow to the Tuatadana if they could get a hold of this marvelous harp and keep it from the Dagda from being able to use it. While the battle was raging and his home was unguarded, a few Fomorian warriors crept in and they stole the harp away. They fled as far as they could, taking their wives and children with them. They were hopeful that their side would win the battle, with great and terrible Balor leading the Fomorian forces they thought for sure they couldn't lose. But nothing is ever certain in war, and so they took refuge at a deserted castle to wait for the news, and they hung the Dagda harp on the wall. Before too long, the defeated remains of the Fomorian army began to trickle down the road towards them, and they knew that their side had lost the battle. They consoled themselves with the fact that they had taken Dagda's treasure and made sure that they were all between the harp and the door in case anyone came to retrieve it. When the Tuatadana came home from battle, celebrating their great victory, they called for Dagda to play on the harp, and it was then they found it missing. Agma, the artificer, and Lu, 
of the long arm stood up straight away and volunteered to go get Dagda's harp back from the Fomorians. At last they came to the deserted castle where the Fomorians had made their camp. They could see there Dagda's harp hanging on the wall. Ogma looked at the great mass of Fomorian warriors sleeping before them, who greatly outnumbered the three of them, and wondered how they were going to get past them. But Dagda stretched out his arm and called to his harp, and the harp sprang off the wall and ran straight to him. The Fomorians woke at the sound and drew their weapons to advance on the three men of the Tuatadana, and Lou whispered to Dagda, I think you better play your harp. And Dagda struck the strings with his hand and called on the music of mirth. In spite of themselves, the Fomorians began to laugh. They laughed so hard that the weapons slipped out of their hands and their feet began to dance. But when the music stopped, they snatched up their weapons again and started to advance. Then Ogma said to Dagda, I think you better play your heart. And this time when the Dagda struck the strings, he called for the music of grief. All the Fomorians began to weep. The children wailed and the men hid their faces in their cloaks so that no one could see the flood of tears that were in their eyes. But when the music faded, again they took up their weapons. Then Dagda struck the strings of his harp so softly that it seemed it would not make a sound at all. But he brought forth the music of sleep, and though they struggled to keep their eyes open, Every last Fomorian fell down into slumber, and Lu, Ogma, and Dagda left them sleeping there and snuck away, and never was Dagda's harp ever stolen again. A few parting thoughts. The harp has always been very important to the Irish. It once was an emblem on the flag of Ireland before the flag became the green, white, and orange it is today. If I can give any young parent advice, I would tell them, have your child learn to play the harp. They will never want for a college education or a career. In Ireland, if you see an unplowed section of a farmer's field left totally untouched, it's a fairy mound that should not be disturbed, and so the farmers don't disturb it. To do so would cause many problems for the farmers and their family and for generations to come. Another thing you'll see in Ireland are little houses in people's yards. These are fairy houses to provide fairies refuge when they're visiting the real world. My own grandmother's behaviors, I remember, leaving butter in the window, and when pouring a bucket of water out in the backyard, pouring it gently as to not splash the fairy Something I always continue to do is to leave the puka share. We have a little farm here and we grow vegetables and fruit. And we never take all of the crop. You always leave a portion called the puka share. In Ireland, there's these evil fairies called pukas. And they can make your life quite miserable if you don't take care of them. Lastly, I want to talk about the Irish language. There was an article in the Irish Times in 2018 questioning whether we were looking at the Irish language and teaching it and trying to revive it in schools all wrong. 
The author said, rather than it being a subject that causes heartache in school, might it actually be a periscope into our psyche and our souls? A path towards an entirely fresh way of seeing reality, transforming existence from a predictable, quantifiable 3D dimension into a vacillating, multidimensional realm with the potential of bleed through from other parallel worlds. Bull goes on to say, first, there are some truths about the language that need to be acknowledged, though the grammarians and language academics might not agree. One, Irish derives from a world in which the unseen is as real as the seen. Two, it acknowledges the existence of other dimensions. Three, it is based on the understanding that nature and land are vibrant and sentient beings. Four, at its most potent, it can be a language of incarnation, meaning that it has or might have the potential to sum up wishes, behaviors, people, and things. The article goes on to share some words like sklimpini, Sklimpini, which conveys the effect of light, dancing before one's eyes, either real light or supernatural, those glimpses we get through the veil of what lies beyond. A single word like this can shift one's frame of reference radically to question all one's assumptions and offering the potential of a more holistic and limitless way of thinking and being. Another word in the article, konin, it means a speck of dust, a husk of corn, a snowflake, or a subatomical particle and a minuscule smidge of butter or anything tiny that gets into an eye and irritates it. But, m but most evocatively of all, it also means the goosebumps you feel in a moment when you contemplate how everything is interrelated and how tiny we are in relation to the world. Another example is skim what means a tiny coating of tiny particles like lime wash on a house or dust on a mantelpiece. But another way of looking at it, it can mean fairy film that covers the land or a magical vision or best or most alluring of all, succumbing to the supernatural world through sleep. And this is why I love the Irish language. The Irish language allows us to access to, should we dare open ourselves to it, might our world in its current state benefit from a language that allows for fairy film that covers the land, a language that offers the potential of being whisked away to a supernatural world through sleep? The word ithir. Its basic meaning is a particle or a spark of flame or light or the tiniest portion of something, but it has other meanings that can act as a wedge to prize open perspective that would otherwise remain hidden. For example, it can refer to the vulnerability and the insubstantiability of a solid object such as a swamp or a trembling of the land in an earthquake. The article goes on to say this notion that our world is not as rigid or as dense as we'd like to believe has become more relevant with our growing awareness of quantum physics and how electrons are forever materializing and then dematerializing and reappearing somewhere else. 
All we really know is that our bodies, fields, mountains, and stars are elementary particles vibrating and fluctuating constantly between existence and non-existence, swarming in space even where it seems that nothing is there. In Irish, Mari means to go astray into other dimensions. The Irish language allows me to see my world in a different way than the English language does. It allows me to see it in much more richer context. Kuramargiv. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Incomparable History of Ireland. Please leave me some feedback. And if you'd like to visit our Facebook page, Clan Miguel, Delaware, I'd love to see you there. My next episode will continue the mythological cycle. Slana Gif. Gudi Anheit Ur Ella. Goodbye, everyone. Till next time.